Let's, let's pray together. Um, I don't know how you walk into this room. You might walk into this room as a skeptic seeker. You might walk into this room as a growing Christian. You might walk into this room as someone who is seasoned, who loves the Lord, who has gladly picked up the cross and denied yourself to follow him. Uh, but wherever we find ourselves this morning, might we um, ask God to do something more. Uh, there's more of him to be seen, more of him to know, more of him to discover, more of him to enjoy. And there is a Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinitarian God, who is the only one who is able to illuminate your mind and heart and ears to these realities. So might you ask him to do that. Appeal to him. Say, God, reveal yourself to me in a ways that I have not been revealed. God, expose me through exposing your word. God, perfect me into more the image of the Son, as I'm reminded that your Son is my perfection. God, for some of us, maybe it's ripping us out of routine where this is more of a hobby and um, kind of just a system of things that you do. May he awaken you to the treasure that happens when we gather together as God's people and as we walk as his people. Some of you are in very dark seasons. Ask God to give you hope, hope that is set upon the only place hope could be found. thank you that you hear us. What a miracle that you hear us. That right now, God, you're actually listening and not just listening, but acting and responding. God, might this be a sweet end to this book. Might you lift our eyes to higher heights. Might you place our hearts on places that are much more sturdy and steadfast and everlasting and sure. God, teach us the goodness of who you are today. Thank you for Habakkuk in this book. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, Habakkuk. We're landing the plane today. We're finishing Habakkuk. Sad day. I literally feel like we just started, and uh, this book has been profound. just want to say I am personally so encouraged at just having conversations with so many of you, uh, sharing how this book has uh, literally dug for you a well that is deep in your understanding of God. You're growing in Jesus Christ, looking at pain, plight, difficulty, and suffering, and hardship, uh, and the ways that God has been revealing more of himself to you. Uh, and showing you more of his truth that has put you in a place that is much more steadfast and secure. It's been uh, super encouraging. Now, now, this section at the end, listen, th- this, is, this is the place where if you want to highlight, circle, square out a section of your Bible, it's this one, okay? Uh, these three verses, Habakkuk 3, 17 to 19, because here's what's happened. Habakkuk is a prophet. He has spoken for God to the people of God. We're eavesdropping in this particular uh, book on his conversation with God, and he asks questions that so many of us ask. He, he lays before his heart in a real way, an authentic way, in an honest way, Um, and God responds, God says things, he grounds himself in some places, all that lead him to the place where you see today, where he can say something crazy, like he's going to say this statement and you're immediately going to, because you're American, say there's no way he said that, okay, so we're going to, we're going to look at this text, look at what he said here and then chat about it, but first I just want to simply read it and enjoy it and then, and then talk about some details, so this is a song of faith, remember this is this is all along in chapter 3. This is the coming out of him, remembering the Exodus, and recalling the Exodus. He is still praying. He's still in a posture of worship. And this is what he says in verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet, <laughs> insane, 
yet. I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. Okay, so um, out of the gate, I always say let's always be honest and strip back the veneer, ways that we're feeling like we have to kind of play up something else or wear a mask. Listen, if we're honest and we read this from from a face value perspective as Americans, we're going there's no way that's what it means. There's no way he's talking about devastation like that and turmoil like that after all he's walked through where he can still say, I'm going to rejoice. I'm going to take joy in the God of my salvation because for us, right, as we, we read this, here's what he's saying. Um, you come up to him and say, hey, how you doing? Um, rejoicing. The Wegmans and Costco shut down for life. We no more food anywhere, right? All kids are disobedient. There's nothing but conflict in the marriage. I'm rejoicing. Like how, like how can you take joy in God when, when that's what you're saying, when that's what you're feeling? I mean, this, this lays on us in super practical, real ways. And here's the thing is um, when it comes off of verse 16, here's what you have to see. He's not just rejoicing. He's having joy in the midst of the grief and sorrow. Now, I'll tell you why that's so important. And this is how it's coming out of him remembering the Exodus. Verse, verse 16 that Pastor McKinney read last week, he shows how at a physiological level it's affected him. Where he's, he's weeping, he's panicked to a degree. Here's what's amazing. Um, he's showing us that in his emotional distress and sorrow, that's when he says yet. That word yet means deep repose and peace. So, so here's what Habakkuk really is saying. I'm weeping, I can't stand on my own two feet, and I'm totally at peace. Now we all have trouble with that, Right? Because we say, no, 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 you either have sorrowful days, there's dark days, I weep, or I rejoice, right? It's either or, it's not both and, and the Bible say you can have both. The Bible say you can absolutely walk in both. Now, um, what's crazy is I, I would guess that um, anyone in the right mind would give a million dollars to say, okay, tell me how I can have total peace and ease amidst a world and environment and kind of life where everything around me is falling apart. Well, great. You don't need a million dollars. You just need the Bible. The Bible answers that for us. Because Habakkuk has discovered something. He's discovered something and realized something. He does not need his problems answered. He needs the presence of God. And he's going to show you how nourishing that is. He's going to show you how good that is. He has moved from all of his complaints to total contentment. All of his problems have turned to praise and worship because he's discovered something. Now remember, there's a pathway. He didn't start out there. He started out going, God, where are you? God, you seem silent. God, are you a just God? God, are you intervening? God, do you look for those who are yours? God, do you care about sin and injustice and oppression? Right? He, he questions him. He talks to him. He pleads with him. But Habakkuk has found a way to come into contact with the goodness and love of God in grief. Because how do you and I, just honestly speaking, how do you and I determine when God is good? The goodness of God, right? When when circumstances are good, right? When the 401k's up, spouse is doing Ephesians 5, like all your Amazon orders all come in. They're not, they're just like you thought. All the house appliances are working just like you thought, right? Boss is favorable towards you, isn't a jerk. Like there's no traffic on the highway or on the turnpike or the parkway, right? That's when God is good. We, we infer God's goodness based upon our circumstances. Well, God's really blessed me today. 
God's really been good to me, right? That's how we infer, infer God's goodness. But Habakkuk has come to realize the goodness and love of God when life is totally bleak. That's a new category. That's a new place to stand. And it's important to note this song of faith is to make it further, it's not based on your circumstances improving. So he's not going, oh, I'm hopeful and eventually this will change. He's laying before you, this is total devastation. I don't even see light at the end of the tunnel. I am just putting my hope somewhere outside of this that is confident, secure, and sure. He says that the fig tree should not blossom. Right? Figs, fig trees not only produce figs, but then a blossom next to it. He goes, not only are there no figs, there's no blossoms coming either. He says, there's no fruit on the vines. This means, man, there's no seeds going into the ground, so you won't even have crops this year. You won't even have crops the following year. He says, there's no, there's no herd in the stall. The flock be cut off from the fold. There's no love in the barn, so we don't even have more cattle coming. There's not only no cattle here now, there's none coming next year. He says, though the olive fail, man, in the Mediterranean, olive oil, man, that was for everything. Beauty needs, cooking. You used it for much of what you did, dieting. When the olive failed you, life was devastating. You couldn't, you couldn't survive. You couldn't eat the way you thought you could eat. He has given you a picture of all being lost. He's not giving you a picture of, hey, things are really bad, but I've got reason to believe it's going to turn around. And he says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. So here, here's the question. How... How do we have unshakable joy in God in, in troubled times? Like, how do we rejoice in the Lord then? Now, here's the problem even when I say that. <laughs> is, is it's so Christianese to us that, that we've heard that phrase so many times, none of us have a clue what it means. Yeah, man, take joy in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord, right? What does it mean? I don't know. Smile? I don't know. Like, look at my Bible. I don't, what does rejoice in the Lord mean? So I, I want to talk about, he, he doesn't leave us hanging. He shows us just in this text what it means to rejoice in the Lord when everything around you is bleak and dark and decaying. We need to learn how to rejoice in the Lord, do we not? Not just say it, but walk in it. Does us no good just to learn Christian phrases and they be like, yeah, that sounds really great. I have no idea what it means. That's like happy after a sermon. Awesome sermon. What did I say? I don't remember. You, guys, I, you all say that. I'm like, okay, well, give me something you can put your foot on. And then I remind you, Grace, I, I remember I said, oh, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's get somewhere. Let's walk in what we hear. Let's practice what we already know. And so here's what I have to do before I give you these four things that we see in this text at How to Rejoice in the Lord. Number one is I have to define some terms for you because uh, I want to make sure we know what we're talking about. We're not talking about happiness. And this is so important because happiness is such a weird thing. It's so fleeting. It's a fleeting passion. We're talking about joy here. We're talking about rejoicing, not happiness. Now, here's why we have to understand this. Here's what happiness is. Happiness is the good-natured emotions you feel when, according to you, everything in your life is going as it should. That's happiness, right? Happiness are those emotions, these, these good-natured emotions you feel when the right circumstances, according to you, have all lined up. That's happiness. Um, but here's the thing. Happiness, man, happiness is what you feel when I shared about what you say when God is good, right? Spouse and you were getting along. Kids are obedient. There's money in the bank, right? Like, that's happy, right? Job's doing okay. Lawn's cut. 
Houses have too many breaks or leaks in it. Like, like that, that makes you happy. It's all indicative on these things happening around you when you say, hey, if those all work out that way, then I'm, then I'm happy. So I'm not talking about happiness because here's the thing about happy that I've learned is happiness is totally fleeting. Happiness does not hold up when you receive a phone call that takes you to the floor. That's how I know that. Like, like we know this because all of us have had that day. Maybe you're in that season right now or it's coming, or it has, has been, where the good chunk majority of your life was pretty good, and you received that piece of news, or that phone call, or that person said that thing to you that leveled you and destroyed you. So, so your happiness was gone. It will not sustain you in difficult circumstance. But here's where Habakkuk has landed. Here's what Habakkuk has discovered. Avoid the pursuit of happiness above the pursuit of joy at all costs. Like avoid it. Like avoid trying to organize your life in such a way to where you can just be happy because it's a dead end. It's a ceiling you hit. You will never be confident and secure because something will happen. That dark day or dark night will come where your happiness will be robbed. So he's saying, man, I need, I need joy somewhere. I need to rejoice in something that is not indicative of my circumstance. And the scriptures will continue to say that God has not come to make you happy. He's come to give you joy and joy to the full. Right? Okay, here's joy. Acts 7. Stephen, right? First martyr of the Christian faith. He, he's preaching the gospel. He goes out. He's being stoned to death. And he says at the end before he dies, Lord, forgive them. Don't hold this against them. That's Christian joy. That's God. Show them the same grace, mercy, kindness, forgiveness that you've shown to me. Right later, you get an axe later, and uh, the disciples are preaching, and they get thrown and beaten in prison, then they get released. It says they left not happy, they left rejoicing. You have Paul later, he's preaching outside Jerusalem in the book of Acts, and he gets beaten, thrown out of the city, left for dead. They think he's dead, he storms right back in. Man, that isn't happiness. It isn't, man, I'm so thrilled I was left for dead outside the gates of Jerusalem. It's he's rejoicing in a message, rejoicing in a cause, rejoicing in a God who's had a, something upon his life that takes him from almost being dead back into the city to keep preaching the same news. That ain't happiness. Man, his soul is anchored somewhere. Right? That's what Habakkuk's getting for us. Joy cannot be taken, but happiness can. So understand words. When we say rejoice, that's what we mean. And we're going to see more in depth what it means. So what does it mean to rejoice in the Lord? And I want to quantify something. Not for your suffering. I'm not talking about some masochistic, weird, yeah, I just love suffering. Uh, it's rejoicing in your suffering. It's not rejoicing for your suffering. It's you finding a place of hope outside of your suffering. It's you rejoicing in something that's outside of your circumstance. That is better than what you're currently experiencing. There's four things. We remember, we repeat, we rejoice properly, and that leads to a rootedness. I'm going to go through each of these with us. If you're note takers, don't worry. It'll be up there. I know I gave you a list for your final sermon. Here we go. Number one, we rejoice in the Lord by remembering. By remembering. Um, where is he saying this text? Though the fig tree should not blossom, fruit beyond the vines. He's saying it coming out of chap- chapter 3, 1 to 16, where he just described the exodus. He's remembering the exodus. Now, what was the exodus for Habakkuk? It was the gospel as far as he could see. It was God led us out of slavery, and he did not do it with our help. He did it all through his own authority. He did it despite us. 
and he saved us. He's recounting it. God intervened, and they were saved not by what they did, but by what God did. He's remembering the gospel until he gets to verse 17, and now he's going, now I have peace. Now I'm at ease. Now that the fig tree doesn't blossom and no fruit beyond the vines. He's remembering the gospel until he gets here. Habakkuk's saying, I've got to connect what I know about God and what he's done in the past to my present. Remember, remember. Listen, the, the scriptures are filled with remembering. I mean, remembering the gospel. Now, now here's why we've got to be so careful is um, we so often want to move on to other things. But he's recounting his exodus. We have an exodus in Jesus, which we'll get to, but that's what we're remembering and recounting. This is why Paul will say over and over, you just read your New Testament, hey, I'm going to tell you again what I've already told you 700 times. Remember the gospel. Don't veer away from this. Don't move on from this. 1 Corinthians 15. This is of first importance, man, before carpet color and sound of music and wall color and lights and building structure. Man, don't get away from Christ crucified, buried for three days, rose again. According to the scriptures, you can bank on it, trust in it, walk in it, and enjoy it. Don't move away from that, man. He'll remind us over and over. Hey, Galatians 1. Anyone comes to you saying any other type of thing other than that? Man, let him be anathema. Let him be damned. Even an angel. Wow, that's weighty. I mean, he just lays it before us. Romans, don't forget that it's not on your merits. It's done by works. Galatians, you're freed from this law. Don't go back to that yoke of slavery. Remember the gospel. He'll say it over and over and over. Why? He wants to remind you. We are forgetful people like the Israelites, right? They get out of the Exodus. Oh, where's God? He's part of the Red Sea. Where is he? Gave you manna from the sky, food from heaven. Where is he? Water out of a rock. Where is he? <laughs> Morons. <laughs> just like us, right? I mean, he just shows his faithfulness, proves his faithfulness primarily in the work of his son, and we go, where is he? What has he done? Oh, he's done something big on Calvary that is not just for your past and your present, but your enduring future. Luke 8, right, Jesus uh, stills the storm. <laughs> Famous story. A lot of us have probably heard it. Do we remember these things, though? I mean, think about that story. They're in the boat. They're panicked, right? Master, man, you got to wake up. you got to wake up. There's a bad storm. What happens? Jesus gets up, stills the storm. What does he say to the disciples? Where is your faith? He didn't say, man, you got to pray harder. You need more faith. He said, where is your faith? You have it. You have it. Don't panic. Remember who I am. Remember who's with you. Like it's, it's already there. It's in your, it's in your fold. It's in your, in your bulletin. I mean, you, you can do this. Pull it out. Use it. Don't panic. Remember, instead of looking at the storm, look at what God has done. Look at who he is. We learned that in chapter 1 of Habakkuk. So here, here's my question. What is it, if you're a Christian, you claim to be a Christian, and when I say Christian, I don't just mean you show up to church. I mean you lean in fully to the weight, worth, and love of God and Jesus Christ, slaughtered for you, risen for you, taking your sin as your substitute in your place, adopting you as his kid, indwelling you with his spirit, empowering you for holiness. That's what I mean when I say Christian. So if that's you, what does the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead do for you? Like, What does it do for you? Like if you remember that, what does it do for you? It reminds us that we will never die. Because Jesus lives, we will live with him. It reminds us that man, he can actually be our, our all-satisfying portion because he can actually hold up his own claims. It means the promise of his presence in Matthew 28 that will be with us always is actually going to happen because he's not dead. 
So you believe a lot of things and remember a lot of things, but do you actually remember them? And then do we walk in those things that we've been taught and that we know? This is what we're seeing. C.S. Lewis said, and I think rightly, he said, people need to be reminded more than they need to be instructed. I would agree. I say this a lot. Your and I's joy, your and I's walking in godliness, growing in holiness is inextricably connected to you practicing and remembering what you already know. How many times we show up, eh, Pastor Mike, give me some new insight, some new theology, some new. No, you need to remember your exodus. You need to remember what God saved you from and what he did in that and what he is to you still. Warfield, great theologian, wise man. Man, read a lot of his stuff, commentaries, wrote stuff on scripture, man, brilliant. They asked him on his deathbed, hey, what's the greatest theology you've ever heard or learned? Everybody's like, right? I'm even, as I'm reading it, I'm leaning in. You know what he said? Jesus loves me, this I know. That's it? That's it. Jesus loves me, this I know. That was his refuge. Simple, basic, yet profound truth. He loves you? Loves you in spite of you? With a covenant love, not a contract love? Not, not based upon performance, but based upon just him saying he will? To Warfield, that was all he needed. I wonder for us, how much do we remember this means have a heart and mind that is driven in all circumstances into the God of the universe in the face of Jesus Christ. Go back through his list in chapter 1. Remember he's everlasting. Remember he is just. Remember he is sovereign, reigner and ruler of all things. Remember he's merciful. Remember his return is imminent. Remember your names are written in the book of life. Remember that he's merciful and good and kind. Remember that he's a judge of sin. Remember that he is has all authority. Remember that he is imminent. Remember that he's immutable. He never changes. Remember that he is eternal. He stands outside of time and in places of time and in the future. Remember all those things. Remember that about him. That's how we rejoice in the Lord and you keep thinking about it until you're okay. That's how you get through suffering. I'm not talking about positive thinking. I'm talking about you thinking about real things that are actually true. Not ethereal, like, hey, we just kind of like think about these. That's how we grew up in, in Christian environments, right? Evangelical circles. Yeah, let's just think about these things. They uh, Forget it. They have no weight on our life. We're just routine, doing our thing. We're not in real relationship. We're not leaning into him, not submitting to him, not following him. But, but we'll think about these things. No, I mean walking in real, majestic, glorious truths that are real. So we rejoice in the Lord by remembering. Number two, we do it by repeating. This is a fascinating one. It's, it's, it's connected to remembering, but look at verse 18. He says the same thing twice. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Why does he say the same thing twice? Because you can learn it two different ways. It makes the meaning deeper. You know this is a consistent pattern of the Bible. Like if, you just, if you're used to reading your scriptures or you're not used to the scriptures, do you know it's just a book that just keeps repeating itself? It keeps telling you glorious things over and over again. That's what the Bible is. Now, Habakkuk here repeats himself. So any good editor would say, uh, that's really bad speech, right? Because they say, get rid of needless repetition. So does Habakkuk need an editor? I don't think so. If anyone's read the Bible, they know the Bible never says anything only once. 
the Bible constantly repeats. It constantly renews itself. It constantly rejoices in things it's already said. He's saying the same thing differently so you understand it by hearing it twice. Do you repeat what you remember to yourself over and over? This is like when I have critics all the time going, why are there four Gospels? Like, what do you mean four? Aren't they essentially saying the same thing? Like, it's kind of the same story with the same man. What happens, man? You read Matthew's account, Luke's account, Mark's account, John's account, you get different insights. Your well gets deeper. Your love for Jesus grows stronger. You see more things you didn't see before. You see perspectives from other people in the story you didn't see before. The Bible always repeats itself. Jesus and his miracles, right? He did miracles, some would argue, more than once. He feeds 4,000 and 5,000. I've had critics go, it's got to be the same miracle. He wouldn't do that twice. Well, then you haven't read the Bible. Because when does he ever do something only once? He says things multiple times. He says how grace is found multiple times. He says what he's doing multiple times. He tells the rock-headed disciples over and over and over, hey, I'm going to do this. You won't understand. I'm going to do this. You won't understand. They get angry. I told you you wouldn't understand. But I told you over and over and over. We need to read texts and repeat them to ourselves. Think about it. You read a verse. <laughs> you ever had those, that moment where you're like, you stumble across a verse and you're like, wow, I did not know that was in here, right? And you're just, you're just looking at it, staring at it. What happens? Then you go talk with a friend about it. And then you go to your growth group and you discuss it. Then you hear a sermon on it. Then you sing a song about it. What happens? Oh, my goodness. Through repeating you are growing and maturing and seeing it in ways that you did not see it before. This is the discipline of repetition. I love speaking scripture out loud. I'll repeat the same scriptures to remember them through repeating them. Certain psalms, certain verses. So scripture memory is so important. It always goes deeper every time you repeat it. And that's how you get through suffering. Through remembering and repeating. And this leads to something massive. Number three. We rejoice, and I put in parentheses, properly. I want to make sure we understand what we're saying here. This is where all this takes him, right? God, where are you? God, you don't seem like you're intervening. It seems like you're not a God of justice. It seems like this. seems like that. seems like you're not showing up. And then what happens? God answers, says, hey, I'm bringing about this judgment to, to destroy you and to invade you. I'm disciplining you. And then what happens? Okay, he, he roots himself in God's character. I'm recalling who you are despite my suffering. And then he gets to this place where God says, hey, remember, don't live prideful, trusting in yourself. Live righteous, trusting in me. We see how that comes at the end here of this prayer, remembering the Exodus. And then he gets to this final place. And that's why he can say in verse 19, someone else is my strength. Someone else upholds me. Like someone else is for me. Verse 19, he says, God the Lord is my strength. He's not simply talking about a feeling. He's talking about a discipline. When we're talking about rejoicing, some of us immediately go to emotiveness, feelings. That's fine. There's joy in that space. Not full Christian joy, though. Not joy like you'll see in every other text of the scriptures. There is deep discipline here. Philippians 4, Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I'm going to tell you again, rejoice. 
that verse used to bug me. Because I'm going, okay, hold on a second. First, um, commands are like not happy things, right? You can't command someone to rejoice. You command someone not to kill somebody, right? That's a command. Secondly, he doesn't repeat himself in any other command. Like he does in Philippians 4 with rejoice always. Hey, I'm going to say it again, rejoice. He doesn't say, hey, don't kill anyone. I'm going to tell you again, don't kill anyone. Right? Doesn't say that. Doesn't say that anywhere else. So there's something about Paul apostolically commanding us to rejoice and saying it again that's important. So here's the question. How can Paul apostolically command you and me to be happy? He can't. That's why he can't be commanding you to be happy. He's commanding you to do a discipline. He's commanding you to rejoice. And he's commanding you to do this in such a way where it's not just some mental stoic thing. Rejoicing means to treasure something. Like rejoicing means to savor. It means to adore. It means to praise. Now we're getting somewhere. That's what rejoicing means. Rejoicing means you take something that's happened and you say to yourself, okay, how do I feel about this? And then I look at what God has done. He's an object outside of this and I begin to rejoice in that thing. I start to adore and treasure and savor, not my circumstance, but a God who's upholding me, a God who's for me, a God who resurrected himself for me, a God who bled for me, a God who adopted me, a God who secured me, a God who did everything for me. All of a sudden, your anchor's somewhere, not in you, it's in him. God's my strength, not Mike Reed's my strength. All of a sudden, there's a total shift going on from your total inclination and proclivity to self-reliance, which we're all plagued with, to a reliance on God and who he is and his nature and character. This gets us to the secret, because look, there's, there's a danger in a lot of people that think, Rejoicing in the Lord is this like just fake stoicism where I smile and I laugh and I say I'm good. Man, read Job 1. Profound. You know what you see in Job 1? Job 1, Satan comes to God, takes away his whole, all of his children, his flock, and what happens? Job tears his garments, he goes out, he weeps, he worships, and what does the writer say? In all that Job did, he sinned not. Oh, I would argue maybe some churches would have trouble with that. No, he didn't have enough faith. That's why he was weeping. No, there's something about joy and sorrow. There's something about being able to rejoice in sorrow. The grief that he had, because the Bible said he did nothing wrong. He did nothing wrong in weeping. Nothing wrong in tearing his clothes. Nothing wrong in crying out to God. He sinned not. So how, how can that be true? I mean, we got Jesus, right? Perfect man who ever lived. Holy, above reproach before God, man. He cried all the time. He wept over the city. He wept at the tomb of Lazarus. He wept in the garden. He cried. But he didn't sin. There wasn't anything wrong with his weeping and his grief. Our grief drives us to joy in God. It's like when it's cold outside, what happens? The furnace kicks on and it gets hotter, right? We're going to see this in just a minute. 
The sorrow enhances the joy and drives you to God. The grief and sorrow with joy together is necessary. Jesus feels the grief. Habakkuk feels the grief. And this rejoicing enables you to feel grief without it sinking you. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Paul says, I'm crushed, but I'm not destroyed. There's this amazing like paradox we live in. He's active in this. My heart's failing. Help me. This person I love is dying, but I, I remember they're not mine. They're yours. Man, I'm, I'm trusting you in this. It might not be happy all the time or smiley, but it's rejoicing. Why? Because in that moment, you're not without hope. It's sorrowful yet rejoicing. In other words, you're finally emotionally healthy. How many of us wish we were emotionally healthy? The Bible tells us how to be emotionally healthy. Have joy in sorrow, joy in grief. A security that's not in our circumstance or indicative of it. It's not swept by emotive things. It's not fleeting and failing. It's rock solid. It's an anchor. Now, why is this possible for us? I mean, why, why, why is it okay? How can we do this? Listen, um, Habakkuk could, just from looking at an exodus... <laughs> which was the gospel as far as he knew it. But we have a leg up on him, man. We have a perspective on the Exodus he didn't even have. Luke 10, Luke 10. Luke 10 and Luke 9 give you some insight into this. Luke 10, Jesus sends out the disciples. He gives them power and authority. Man, they're sending out demons. They're healing people. Then they all come back, and what do they say? Man, we're so thrilled. We're rejoicing because even the demons submit to us in your name. What does Jesus say? Are you serious? <laughs> don't, don't, don't rejoice in that. Don't, don't treasure that. Don't savor that. Don't praise that. Don't find your worth in that. And then he says, rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Hmm. Huh. Yeah, I see all your faces. You're like, huh. <laughs> right? Here, if, back then and still today, if your names are engraved in something, what, you're, you're a value, right? You got a trophy for yourself, you're, you're on a wall on, you know, Hollywood run, right? You're, you're apparently significant, you're apparently a value, right? You know what Jesus is saying? Man, man don't, don't let you becoming partner in your company be where your joy is found. That, that's just fleeting, like, don't let you just get, get in the college you want. That's great. But don't let that be the, the primary, ultimate place where you find your joy, what you savor, what you treasure. Like, don't, don't find maybe how, how full your account is in the bank or how well your job's going or how well the marital situation is. Don't, don't let that be where you ultimately find your thing that you savor and treasure. Man, all those things will be fleeting. All those things are false gods. All those things will disappoint you. He goes, man, if you're going to treasure, savor, worship, adore something, hey, your names are written in the book of life. Past tense. They're written. Like, you want approval? You've been rejected? You want approval? How about that? You want to talk about love and acceptance that's fixed, that's sure, that you can never be let go of by him, that he's a father that loves you eternally? Man, treasure, savor, worship that. Man, you, you, you feel like you're, you're, you're worried because your bank account isn't full? Man, worship that your name's written in heaven. That's true wealth. That's actual wealth, though. Right? Like, like he's saying, this is where you land your mind. This is where you land your heart. This is where you drive your affections. So it's possible for us. Now, how could he make that claim? 
How could Jesus make that claim? Go back to Luke 9, Mount of Transfiguration. Amazing. Who does he meet on the mountain? He takes Peter, James, John, I think, right? Anyways, his top three or whatever. They all go up there, right? And he's up there on the mountain, and who's there? Moses and Elijah. And his glory starts to shine, and I love it. There's a translation there that even English doesn't even know what to do with. It says they spoke about his departure. You know what it actually says? It says they spoke of the exodus he would accomplish. Moses is going, hey, Jesus, remember that exodus? How awesome was that? I was the anointed one, brought everybody out of Egypt. Jesus is going, Moses, Moses, man, I'm about to do something, brother, that's going to blow your mind. Your exodus stinks compared to mine. I mean, seriously, like, like what I'm about to do, man, you, my face is fixed. Luke 9 is the turning point, that whole gospel where he goes, man, my face is fit, my, 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 my whole body is facing Jerusalem now, man. He gets a moment with Moses. Elijah's like, hey, can I join in? Like, he's got nothing. I, Mount Carmel, like, he's trying to, like, bring out something cool he did. Moses is like, no, we're having a conversation about our exodus, and Jesus knows what he's going to do, which is why he can say in the next chapter when the disciples come back, hey, don't put your weight and worth in that, because my exodus is going to be a place you can bank everything on. Isn't that awesome? All right, let's keep going. So, so, this is how, this is how you can say God is my strength. This is how you can say it. In suffering, in trouble, when you're distressed, when there's no blossoms. You dream about that, you think about that until you can handle anything. A large reason we lack God is my strength in troubled times, let's be honest, is because most of the time our confidence is not in him. It's in us. And it's incredibly dangerous, especially in Western culture here where a lot of stuff comes at ease for you. Like you think you grew your company. You think you established the life that you have. You built this. You did this. Oh, man, what a dangerous place to live to be seduced into the blindness that is the lie and betrayal of self-reliance. You know how I know that we do not believe God is our strength. That we lack joy in troubled times because we have much more confidence in ourselves. You know how I know that? And I'm speaking for me personally. Because we do not pray like we should. We do not read our scriptures like we should and dive in to be realigned and refixed on the, the God of glory who saved us and rescued us and transforms us. When, when, when bad circumstances happen, you know what we do? We get angry and we, we leave and abandon the Lord. He's not our strength. We get angry at him. And this is where Habakkuk's different. Habakkuk's gone from a man who said, surely you won't do this. No way, no way, no way to saying, okay, if you do this and you're all seeing, all sovereign, all good ways, I know you're going to be my strength to uphold me through this. What a shift. What a change. Lastly, what does this create? What does this lead to? Remembering, repeating, and rejoicing properly it creates a rootedness. Man, you, you become rock solid in godliness. You mature. I know, crazy. You actually mature. You actually become more like Jesus Christ. Your well gets deep. James 1, you're complete lacking in nothing. This is what happens to the, the person who does this. Now, now, this was Habakkuk. 
It led to this rootedness. He says this in verse 19. What does this create? He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. And all of a sudden, this rejoicing in the Lord that's rooted in God, remembering his ways and what he's done, repeating it over and over and over, has led him to a place where he's rejoicing properly to where he's up on the mountain peak that should be terribly dangerous, and it's the safest place to be. His foot doesn't slip. It's secure. You, you ever been hiking? I don't know if you like hiking. I hate hiking, so it's great if you want to. I'll play sports, but walking up a mountain of dirt makes no sense to me. So, so we, I went hiking. People ask me half up. Want to go higher? No. Want to go back home. Want water. That's my answer every time, right? But you can look. You'll see peaks no matter how high you get. There are peaks and places where there are animals where you can never get there, right? And they're secure and their footing is steady. And, man, he, he's, he's showing us something. He's showing, man, you can get through tribulation and trial and walk through them and beyond them in a way that is not natural but supernatural. Where your hope's in a place outside of you. Your confidence isn't in you. You're the freest man or woman in the universe because you enjoy God and not yourself. You worship God, not, not his stuff. Oh, man, this is, this is so awesome where he brings us. He's showing us basically that, that your, your disappointments and failures, when they come to you, it pushes you to heights spiritually. See, suffering will either push you to heights or destroy you. And that's usually indicative of the maturity of your faith. You know, as you walk through suffering, is it not true that it makes certain people different? Some people get more soft. Some people get more hard. Um, in suffering, some people get more humble and some get a lot more arrogant. Some people get sweet. Some people get cynical and sour, right? Doesn't it do that? It pushes us two directions. Some get tender. Others get more hard. Some get more empathetic with others. Some get more bitter towards others. And here's where Habakkuk has found his hooding, footing. The end of this. He's learned the only true pathway to joy and suffering is to adamantly pursue the God of the universe in the face of Jesus Christ at all costs. Because if you get everything, a life of ease, you practice escapism, positive thinking, if you get your house, if you get the bank, if you get everything and you don't get him, you've totally lost. That's what he's saying. You've lost. You've lost it all. Judgment's still coming. You're still standing before a holy, righteous God. You've, you've got nothing going for you. This is the closest thing to heaven you'll ever have. For the Christian, the closest will ever be to hell that they will ever see. But that, that does not help us. He's showing us that don't let your goal be a life of ease. Don't let your goal be escapism. Don't let your goal be just positively thinking your way out of things. Let your goal be Jesus Christ and him alone. True life is lived for him, through him, and from him. Colossians 1. That's the only place you're going to find life, have life, and that's the secret in suffering in troubled times. You've got nowhere else to go. I always ask people, how's it working out? Okay. And then they hit a wall. They hit a ceiling. This is Peter. I got nowhere else to go you got the keys to eternal life i got nowhere else to go and he says man that's where you got to drive your heart that's where the pursuit has to be i love it you see him get all the way there true christian maturity is that your joy is fully set on christ you're totally secure in him you're like the deer your foot lets you travel to high places and when life brings you loss and decay and challenge you're still okay 
Yes, you're perplexed. Yes, you're filled with sorrow. Yes, you have despair, but you're not destroyed. You're not crushed. Don't, and don't, man, some of you, I just want to encourage you, don't miss the pathway, right? Some of you guys read these three verses and you're like, man, I'm throwing in the towel. I can't say that, right? Don't look at men and women who are so mature in their faith and just say, well, I'll never be that. I mean, look where Habakkuk came from. Verse 1, God, where are you? God, you, I feel like you've abandoned me to, I'm confident in God. He's the only thing I have joy in. Take steps. Take steps. Because here he's learned how to do everything that he's practiced. And now he surrenders not to lose hope, but realize God is his only hope. And he ends to the choir master with stringed instruments. That's how the book ends. He's ready to rock out. He's ready to praise and worship in dark, troubled times. He's ready to worship. I love it. It started out with all his problems and it ends with only his praise. Right? I don't worship God to get anything. I worship God because to me he's everything. That's all he has now. That's, all, that's the place that he is. And it's amazing. His problems aren't resolved, but his relationship with God has been strengthened. And so that he's able to make it through suffering. Listen, worship now. As he's ending into worship, worship requires faith. Uh, chapter 2, verse 4, the righteous will live by faith. Worship is, man, I am going to worship God until I actually see him do what he told me he would do. And I'm going to keep doing it, right? Worship. I'm going to keep worshiping God until we see what God does. Trusting God will show up until God actually shows up. That's faith. That's living by faith. That's how we worship him. And let me just say this. Many people who struggle with taking joy in God, with rejoicing the God of their salvation, and I mean this because I love you as your pastor, is because of bad teaching. I've found in the nine, short nine years that I've pastored the, the consistent reason that people do not rejoice in the God of their salvation is because of bad teaching. And I don't even know that it's intentional. But I talk to you and it's one of two things. Either number one, God exists for you. God was so lonely, he couldn't live without you. So he had to have you. You know what that creates? Everything he does is to satisfy you. Not in the sense of you being satisfied in him. In him being driven like a genie that you rub to get everything that you want. And so here's what that creates. Because you've heard, you've been taught, I've talked to you, man. Take Jesus, he'll make you wealthy and healthy and get rid of all your issues and he'll fix your marriage and he'll do this and he'll do that. And then what happens? That does, stuff doesn't happen. So you're like, well, I'm out, leaving the church, not praying, this thing ain't working. Spouse leaves me. God's saying, well, that's not working because that's not the way that I work. The other area is you hear the gospel of grace, and I don't know how this happens, either through teaching or through spiritual blindness. We turn it into contract and not covenant. So you hear, wow, God, you give me forgiveness of sin. You make me your child. You count me righteous. That sounds pretty good. Uh, okay, now here's how I'll represent you well. And you sign and you write an, a, like an appeal or a clause at the bottom. And anytime you don't give me those things or what I want, then I will, might not represent you the way that you'd like me to. So, so your whole Christian life is you feeling betrayed by God. Instead of God is for you, God's given you himself. There's nothing at the end of the day in the gospel other than you get him. He reconciles you to himself. You've got eternity coming, but he doesn't promise you 
anything outside of that in this life. He promises he's with you in trouble, that God is for his own name, that God is for you finding joy in his own name. That's what he's promised you. And if you discover that secret, your life will turn to a place where you can take joy in the God of your salvation in the face of your worst day. That's the only way you can get there. And so might God correct that and help us in that. Let's end with Philippians 3, the Habakkuk 3 of the New Testament. Here's what Paul says. A lot of you guys got it on your wall at home. You might want to meditate on it a little longer, right? Philippians 3, he says this. Whatever gain I had, did Paul have gain? Absolutely. Man, he was prominent. He had fame. People loved him. He memorized the Torah. He was one of the best teachers in the religious community. He had gain. Let's not under-spiritualize it. I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. Just don't miss what he said. He says, I'm worshiping, pursuing, adoring Christ. I'm rejoicing in him. I'm treasuring him. Why? To gain him. You guys are going, no way. This is Paul. He already has him. What does he mean gain him? means the Christ that we experience is always greater and more marvelous than our experience of him. There's more to have. There's more to gain. Did you know you got saved not so that you would have all of him, but so you would keep gaining more of him? This is why Ephesians 2 says this, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards Christ Jesus. You know what that text just said? The text just said it's going to take ages for you to get in the depths and beauty that is Jesus Christ. Because Christ is infinite. There's always more to have. There's always more to gain. You don't believe the gospel and then sit in your recliner and just coast through life. Man, you keep gaining more of him. Learning the depths and beauty of who he is. And suffering is a tool that drives you into rejoicing in that. That leads you to him. So that's just so awesome. You don't want to know why that's so awesome because this gives you hope. It's not about an expectation of where you arrive at. It's about the pursuit. It's just about the drive. So here's the question that I want to close with. If you've been saved, if you're a Christian, and I want you to consider this. If you're a Christian who loves Jesus and is submitted to his name, is that causing you to have a passionate plea for more of him or for you to simply follow more moral codes to abide by. What did that do for you? What did getting saved do to you? <laughs> did it make you want to be nicer? That's the worst news in the world. Did it want to make you be more moral only? That's terrible news. Or, or, or did it change your desires and change your hopes and where you bank everything in life? Did it cause you to want to gain him and have more of him? Mark Dever said this. He said, God in his tender providences may remove our comforts and grant us a limp so that we might fully enjoy and lean on him. Listen, I love you. God does not exist to give you your idols. He exists to be the center of your devotion, adoration, and worship. And only there will you be truly joyful and satisfied and happy. 
Only there can you have confidence. So here's the question you got to answer for you. Where, what's the foundation of your joy? It's not a complicated question. It's very simple. Where do you find your strength? What's your confidence in? Him or you? And the solution is Jesus. We do not worship God to get anything. We worship God because he's everything. Can we ask God to help us to do that right now? Father, we need your help. We need the help of the Holy Spirit. God, we've heard a lot. You've said a lot. We've been taught a lot. We've been reminded of a lot. Father, we need you more than anything else. We don't need more codes to follow, Father. We need your presence. We need to know your character and your nature. We need to know what you've already said and already done and what you've promised to do. God, would you encourage brothers and sisters right now who might be in a dark season? Might they remember and repeat and rejoice properly? That might build in them a rootedness, a place where they are pushed to the heights spiritually, where they are seeing things from a vantage point that they never saw before, where they're looking out at the world through the lens that you have made and not the lens by which they want to see things. God, help us to honestly assess our hearts and take some honest stock right now of our souls. Where is our confidence? Where is our joy? Where is our security? It can't be any place but you. We need help for that. God, would you move some people out of routine this morning who just do this to do this? Who might be blinded that they're not even a Christian? Who might think that coming to church makes them somehow more favorable before the throne of judgment? God, Jesus Christ alone pays for sin. Jesus Christ alone gifts righteousness. Jesus Christ alone adopts into a perfect, secure family that is the Father God's who watches over and cares for for all of eternity. God, help us not to rejoice in the demons being subject to our names. Rejoice that our names are written in heaven. God, give us a, a true dark day sustaining, God enjoying, Christ exalting joy that can actually say that the fig tree not blossom, though the fruit not be on the vines, though no sheep be in the fold. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. He makes my feet like the deer's. He lets me walk on high places.